This is One More Time, and I am Sean Smith. Relics from the past are so important to people for one reason or another, often they connect us to previous times, or to a great person we might admire. I used to be a huge Civil War buff. I knew everything, and to this day, I have two musket balls that were found on a battlefield. I bought them to create a connection. People collect items like that for so many reasons, whether it's a signed shirt by your favorite rock band, George Schulte's baton, an original handwritten score, or the door to a house from a famous composer. This story is told by Australian music teacher and band director, Joanne Heaton. Okay, well, we had uh, Tom Friscillo and his wife Cecilia were visiting Australia. They'd come come out to uh, do some clinic or, or some activity of some sort. And um, uh, I was taking them on a day trip and we decided to go and see the birthplace of Percy Granger, which is only about 25 minutes drive from my house uh, in Brighton, uh, in Melbourne. Anyway, we get to the house and there's a plaque in the, uh, the concrete in the front, the front of the house sort of dedicating to this is the birthplace of Percy Granger. So that was great. We got photos of that. But the house had been stripped. It was gutted and it had a wire fence around the edge of it. Um, it was undergoing extensive renovations. Uh, a new guy had purchased the house and he was getting ready to split the house on, in two, unfortunately, sell it as two separate abodes and completely renovate it. Um, anyway, so we could see that there was a lot of debris and here in the mud next to a skip to be thrown out was a door that I very quickly surmised to be a significant door from the house and uh, instantly said, I've got to have that door. <laughs> um, uh, Tom, of course, said, well, we're not going to climb the fence and, and get it. So uh, there was a contractor's board up with the phone number. So I rang the contractor the next day and I got uh, a lady on the phone who was quite lovely and uh, spun a story. Basically, I said, uh, oh, I'm doing a period restoration and uh, I can see that you're discarding um, this door, but it would be perfect for, uh, for this uh, task that I'm, I'm doing and I'm happy to pay for it. And the first thing she said is, you do know it's Granger's house. And I kind of hung my head and went, yeah, okay. <laughs> Anyway, she, she was great. Uh, she, she got where we were coming from and she said, uh, all right, I'll call the contractors. You take a six pack of beer down to the contractors and they'll stick the door in your back in the back of your car, which is exactly what we did. Um, so for the, the grand cost of a six pack of beer, I've got Percy Granger's front door. Um, basically, this, the, the house is interesting how it's built in that, that there's two major front doors. There's one that sits at the side of the house uh, and there's one that's the absolute central main entrance. And that one still is on the house, for, fortunately. This was the side door. But there's the old story of Percy um, throwing a tennis ball over the roof of the house and running through the house and catching the ball on the other side. And I'm quite quite pleased that I, th I think the door that I have is, is one of those doors that he ran through to do that, that trick. So I have uh, completely restored it and now it proudly hangs in my house as, uh, as the door that goes between the lounge room and the kitchen. So uh, that's my Percy Granger door story. The impetus for this episode is exploring Australia and the culture of bands in that country. We will hear from many native Australians and a few Americans who have found their way to the continent at some point in their careers. But first, let's start with Scott Schwartz and his From the Archives segment. Today's episode is about the travels while on the road as a band, and we have a wonderful set of stories to talk about relating to 
Sousa and his band's travels during the world tour. The trip um, begins on April 22nd and ends on September 5th when they land in British Columbia. Total duration um, for the um, trip, specifically from South Africa to Australia, New Zealand, was 134 days. Um, they land in Tasmania on May 12th. Tasmania is not a large island, but nevertheless a place to stop and it was a welcome sight after being on a ship for 19 days. They had been booked to play at the Hobart Hotel that night, but because the ship arrived so late, the concert was canceled. The following day, they get on a different boat and to move them basically from Tasmania to Sydney, Australia. And of course, they passed through Melbourne. The writer of the diary entry wrote, arrived in Melbourne at nine o'clock and took a walk about the business part of the city and it looks like a very good American town. Everything is closed here today. No cigars to be had or anything else. Tram cars are not running during the church hour. So as you might guess, their first day in Melbourne is Sunday and they have no opportunity to buy or enjoy anything other than the scenery. On the 15th of May, they land in Sydney and the band is met by thousands of people in bands. It was one of the largest groups to actually greet the band as they got off the boat. Sousa wrote, It isn't every fellow who comes thousands of miles with his band and is met by a band of a thousand. A rattling good one too, and then entering a hall, hears another band play his own music faithfully and beautifully. On May 16th, after settling into Sydney, several of them decide to check out the town and check out the baseball team. On the 20th, several of them had an opportunity to play a game with the Sydney University baseball team. Others went to the races to enjoy. While it was a rough start, they seemed to be having fun, and the performances each night were well attended. The um, concert rehearsal on the 22nd began at 11 o'clock, and the evening concert was given to a big house. And as soon as they finished that concert, they boarded the steamer Naomi at 11.15 p.m. to go to Newcastle. The packed houses were quite significant. On June 3rd, in one of their final concerts in Sydney, they played for a packed house, and the audience went nuts. The applause went on and on and on, as did the concert, which went on for two and a half hours. And the audiences they applauded shouted, speech. Speech, Mr. Sousa, speech. And Mr. Sousa 
wrote this about that experience. On the closing night in Sydney, I made probably the shortest speech on record. As we finished Old Ang Syne, there were cheers and pleas for a speech. I bowed and backed off, but the applause continued. So I advanced to the front of the platform, and when I had obtained silence, I called out, Can everyone hear me? Yes, came the response from the house, and with a broad smile I shouted back, Good night, and I scampered off the stage. From the Suzadai in the Suzadai's Life with the Suzadai. This episode's two-minute rehearsal technique is from Monty Mumford, who you will also hear from later in this episode. He is a retired teacher, born in the U.S., who then started a band program in Tasmania, Australia. The rehearsal is my performance. I know there are many conductors that have said that. I, I would just like to say, and you can make much out of it or you can make a little amount of it, is that when I was working at the university, um, 45 minutes of my two and a half hour rehearsal would be unconducted. And I would say that we do too much. If you really want your ensemble to experience what making music is all about, then let them play and get out of their way. Do all your training stuff and don't conduct it. Don't conduct your scales. Don't conduct your rhythm uh, exercises. Don't conduct your rhythm charts. Don't, don't conduct your band etudes. Get, get out of the way and let them play. They will be forced to use their ears. I mean, get off the podium and let the ensemble play. And set up your stuff so that they can. I, I watched a performance at the Utrecht Early Music Festival of the Bach B minor mass involving 16 singers and at least 25 string, string players and wind players, no conductor. Two and a half, you know, was it two hour performance of the Bach B minor mass? No conductor. We are not teachers, we are investment counselors. We are teaching kids how to invest. Every band rehearsal is a lesson in how to practice at home, a lesson in how to invest your time. And if there's not a return on your investment, then you're going to lose your kids. If they're not getting a return, if they don't get a five minute, if they don't have the five minute goal of working, if they don't get a return after spending five minutes on that exercise, or on that rhythm, or on that passage, game over. And nobody likes to invest in something that takes forever to get a, a return. Our story today covers many aspects of banding in Australia. It's hard to really get a picture of bands without talking about their entire system of music education, which is starkly different from the style many of our U.S. listeners may be used to. And to kick off the story, we'll bring back Joanne Heaton, and she'll explain some of this. The, the biggest difference is band is not a subject here. So the band activity that occurs in our schools is an extracurricular activity. So it usually occurs before school or after school or at lunchtime. The kids don't get graded for it. So that sets up quite quite a challenge for us as far as recruitment and retention. So during the school day in a normal high school, students would undertake an instrumental lesson once a week. 
and that would be in a pull-out sort of situation. In our government schools in Melbourne, generally uh, there is probably 15 music staff, so it's very instrument-specific, and the oboe teacher comes in once a, once a week and the flute teacher comes in once a week, the saxophone teacher might come in twice a week and so forth. In the private school system, which is quite extensive here in Australia, the kids will pay for an individual lesson. So they, they'll still be a pull-out situation and they'll still require to, to serve in a large ensemble, um, which will still be before and after school once a week, but they'll have lesson one-on-one with a specific instrumental teacher. Dr. Rob McWilliams will shed some more light on the differences between the United States system and Australia. Dr. McWilliams is currently an educational outreach clinician for Yamaha Australia and spent time in the United States, including working as a band director at the collegiate level in Wisconsin. Right. So um, one of the things that one of the good things about my current job with Yamaha is I do travel around the whole of the countries because it's Australia wide, also a little bit into New Zealand as well. So I, I get to see a pretty broad picture of what, what's going on. Uh, and it is quite different to America, having worked in both systems for, for long periods of time. You know, in the Australian school system, most of the music education that's in the curriculum, that is during the school day, uh, most of that, not all, but most of that is what, what would be called general music in the US. So it happens in the primary level. And then if it does continue on into high school, it typically becomes elective around about year eight onwards. And then at, at that point, it f- tends to focus on things like music history, composition, those uh, music theory, those kind of things. Australia's intense focus on classroom general music means that band directing is not often covered as part of the collegiate experience. It's certainly not the focus of a higher level education, nor is it then the focus of a job. Yeah, well, I guess uh, to be a band director in Australia, I mean, band directing is only a very small portion of what you do. And and again, I'll, I'll talk about um, the school that I've most recently been at. Uh, I taught there for nine years and um, I was director of music um, for a large portion of that before I started my doctoral studies. Um, so my normal school day would be teaching general music in a classroom setting. So, you know, 25 kids in a class. Um, at year seven, it's a compulsory part of the of the subject. So every year seven student does it. Um, and you, you'll teach like theory skills and keyboard skills. Maybe some schools do guitar. Um, so it tends to be, well, the way I teach it, um, I tend to go for the more contemporary side of things because you're looking at every kid so you've got to keep every kid engaged they're not necessarily playing a specific instrument um, but the thing with general music here is it, it's all it, there's so many varieties of, of, of the ways people approach teaching um, uh, some people do it as a band some people do it as a rock band some people do it as completely theory and history um, uh, so it's quite varied how that's approached uh, then I might do some of the instrumental lessons. I tended to teach clarinet and saxophone, so I'd have a, a few pull-out lessons. And then on a Monday after school, I would have my wind ensemble from 3 o'clock till 5 o'clock. I will tell you that in my load um, of what was counted, um, my classroom and my instrumental lessons were counted as part of my load, but the band was extracurricular for me too. It wasn't counted counted as part of my load, so I effectively was doing it for free, for no pay. 
Learning to play in a large ensemble was for many years disconnected from the public school system. You learned to play your instrument privately and joined a band or orchestra later, or as in the case of Bruce Harriman, the principal of instrumental music school services in the Department of Education of Western Australia. Uh, so when, when I started as a young cornet player in a brass band, but that wasn't in the school system, it was in the community band system and, and, and the band master came and taught us the, the instruments and we joined the band and so on. So there wasn't a lot happening in the schools. WA, based on the English tradition, I suppose, was, was a very much a brass banding community for uh, right through from the, the beginning of the 20th century uh, into as you heard from Bruce, the brass band was a very popular ensemble in Australia, as were bands in the style of the British military band. There is one style of band, though, that is missing from the Australian band world, which may either make band directors in the United States elated at the idea of moving to teach in Australia, or make them wonder what Australians do for fun in the summer. Here's Rob McWilliams again. Well, it was, for a lot of reasons, it was, it was a really valuable thing for me because, I, you know, obviously there is that culture in the U.S., and um, so it was great to be immersed in that and see how that all worked. Uh, what, I, what I sort of, I guess, tended to steer clear of by, by necessity because of my background, you know, we, don't ha we really don't have a marching band um, sort of culture in Australia. There's a few isolated um, schools who are sort of doing bits and pieces, but really it's, it's not there in, in the, at the systemic level at all. And so it was very interesting coming to America and going, you know, I did my master's degree at Florida State University, which has a huge marching band program, obviously. So um, going there and just seeing that is such a very different thing to what one would experience in Australia. Um, was looking for jobs, um, university jobs, um, attended obviously not to look at, at um, universities that had marching bands because I just didn't have that background. So uh, University of Wisconsin Oshkosh did not have a marching band. They were really just looking for someone to conduct their wind ensemble symphonic bands um, and not, not deal with a marching band at all. So that was a, a very good fit for me, obviously. I had been talking with Dr. John Lynch for a previous episode, and while I had him on the line, I asked him about the differences between Australian and American bands. He gave me insight into not only how the system could affect the sound, but also how a completely different style of living can affect everything. They definitely have a different sound quality than American bands. If you were to just grossly generalize these things, of course, every band sounds different. But the American sound and the Australian sound is, is quite different. And I think part of it has to do with the structure of how bands are run in both countries and well, I'd say in a very broad sense, um, this is a gross generalization, but I've heard this said before, and there's some truth to it, that in America, we live to work. In Australia, we work to live. And so it's kind of a different approach to life and, and work. And in Australia, it's all about the quality of your life. That the work enables you to have a great quality of life outside of work. And in America, it's sort of built into our DNA that we have to be um, excellent at what we do and strive to achieve the very greatest as an individual in our line of work. And so it's a different approach to life. I asked Bruce Harriman and Rob McWilliams to discuss the differences they see between the United States band system and that of Australia. And they highlighted some things that are quite different, but some things, as they point out, are not that different at all. We probably don't get through the amount of repertoire 
but necessarily that they do in the US so if you meet regularly uh, and and it would depend from from band to band uh, from school to school um, you know we, we have our uh, flagship schools where the students are able to go to for uh, intensive music and and they they're our grade four grade five bands uh, most of the regular school bands are, are grade three grade two three and perhaps grade four and part of the issue we have here, and I, I know it exists in some U.S. schools as well, is perhaps the, uh, the instrument balance and so on, and it's about the re- recruitment and keep retention of kids. There's so many competing things for kids these days over here, and I assume it's very similar to U.S. Yeah, interesting question because it's it's obviously changed a lot. Uh, there's been a much greater change in, in Australia over the last 20, 30 years than there would have been in America, for example, which has had such a, a much longer tradition of, of band culture. So, you know, if you go back before, when I first came over to the States, which was in the early 90s, 91, um, there were bands in Australia, there were bands in schools, um, but it wasn't nearly as pervasive as it is now. Uh, there's many more programs. I would say the quality has definitely gone up. Um, and I would, I would say that the, you know, the really the top level um, school programs in Australia, that what they do in, with their bands in terms of the results they get, um, would, would compare very favorably with what you would see in most American schools. We've had, um, just last year, we had a school from Melbourne um, play at the Midwest International Band and Orchestra Clinic. They had they brought both their um, senior level concert band and their um, senior level jazz band. Both groups got into the Midwest Clinic, so that's an indication that the level is very high. At that, when you get to the highest level, there's probably not as broad. Um, you know, you'd find probably more really good programs in America. So where do Australian bands go from here? Monty Mumford lends his thoughts to this and provides a story about how Australian students and American students are fairly similar at times. What's the future for bands in Australia? It depends on your point of view about why we do what we do. There's a great push, and there has been a great push for the last 30 odd years uh, in, in Australia to get your conducting skills really down. And I'll be able to conduct really well. And that's nice, I guess. But I think that we need to stop thinking about the person out in front. And we need to start thinking about how band directors empower their ensembles. Um, and I, I think therein lies the future of, of, of banding in Australia. Uh, concert bands, in a sense, are a bit of a dead end because we can't go out and play in a professional concert band. Uh, if you play euphonium, <laughs> you can, you've got you've got a, a good chance to play in a military band. Well, the military has taken the military bands have taken great hits in Australia, and the idea that you you're going to go out as soon as you finish your degree and you're going to be able to land in a in a military band uh, that's that's um, that's not going to be easy. And so, in a sense, uh, we, we need to work out what do band what do band graduates what do people who participate in band what what will they do and how will they influence um, the next generation um, why do they love playing in band and do we love playing in band because of the music or do we love playing in band because of the camaraderie ship we love playing in music or doing band because 
da, 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 da. And I, again, I quote my good friend Craig Kirchhoff of the idea that bands should never end with loving the experience of playing in a band over loving music. Um, and so there lies the thing. I mean, I know a lot of my, I know a lot of my colleagues in Australia who, who love bands and and uh, love the performance of band music and um, you know they um, they they love playing in festivals and contests, um, which basically in a sense leads to a exclusivity. I I worked as a, an adjudicator in, in the concert scene. Uh, for many, many years, probably 20, 20 odd years. I, I still do. I still work. So, all right, 30 years. Okay. I can remember one time standing on stage and asking the students on my onstage tutorial, well, what did you think about what you did today? What did, what did you learn today? What did you enjoy about today? I, I worked with 160 ensembles that that particular 10 days and I had that kind of an answer and it doesn't stand for okay it's zero the kids couldn't tell me what they enjoyed they do remember one girl turning around to her band director and saying well how do we play and I said wait 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 a minute no you you need to have an opinion about what happened here today You've spent months learning this music, and you don't have an opinion about what you just did. Now, you could say, well, maybe they were embarrassed and didn't want to say anything. Well, there were no more than maybe 10 or 15 people in the audience. So what is the future for band in Australia? And what is the future for band in America if we can't make the connection to how it's going to make a difference in the lives of the kids when they finish and walk out that door for the last time and they finish the last rehearsal. What do they carry with them? I don't know. It will depend on how much band directors love music and not love band. It was several years ago now. I was doing a four-day four workshop that culminated in the the concert. <laughs> okay, so four 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 days, um, and uh, I, you know there's, it's a longer story. I'll make it. I'll try to make it short. About Thursday morning, a tenor sax player, seventh grader, raises his hand because I was working with the seventh grade band, and he raises his hand and he says to me in a very indignant voice, "When are we going to start working on the concert?" And what I what I didn't quite understand was that he understood that the concert was the most important thing that was going to happen over those four days. I didn't quite get it at the time. But I said to him, well, well, Josh, uh, we've been working on the concert for the last two and a half days. And, you know, you could see you could see a, a sense of something going over his face. And then he shot back at me and says, yeah, but what are we going to play? And I said, well, well Josh, I, I don't know yet. Um, and then immediately I had this incredible flash. I said, so who's your favorite football team? And he said, St. Kilda. I said, oh, it's great. They're a good team. Yeah. So uh, what do they do? They squat and kick the footy around 
every day for you know to play football with, for themselves. And no, no, they they practice kicking and they practice. And he went through the litany, about six litany, and then he stopped and went, oh. And I said, Josh, we've been practicing kicking, we've been passing passing, and we've been doing calisthenics, and we've been done it. And I said, you know what? We're going to play a team on Friday night. And I don't know who yet we're going to play, but we're going to win because we know how to play football. And you can see this big smile go across his face. And I thought, you got it. You understood. And, I, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that kids, you know, they, that's what they really, they really want to understand. Why are we doing this stuff? And how do we make the connection with it? Australia is relatively isolated from the rest of the world. And Bruce Harriman, being part of Western Australia, is even more isolated because his part of the country, centered around Perth, is separated by the vast, empty middle of the country. I guess our, our isolation here in Perth is a bit of a, it's, it's a plus and a minus. Um, uh, the plus side is that we can, um, we can really not feel pressured from other parts of, of the world or other parts of Australia. However, as time goes on, the world gets smaller and we, we know more about what's happening there. And obviously speaking to you today. As the world gets closer together due to technology, our differences become smaller and smaller. We become closer, and while there are small things that separate us, like oceans or the amount of contact hours we receive with our students, we are all pursuing the same thing, bringing high-quality music to students and adults. I need to thank all of my Australian friends for being willing to give their time, and because of the time difference, we often talked in the very early hours of the morning for them. It's okay, I'm not in my pajamas. This month's source material is with composer Jody Blackshaw. She's going to talk to us about her piece, Into the Sun. This piece was commissioned by a public school group that was in Western Sydney. And uh, it, it's kind of like what in America you call an honour band, I guess. So this is a group that was based out in Western Sydney, um, conducted by Craig McGowan. I was living on the fringe of Western Sydney in the Blue Mountains at the time. I'd, I'd had a little bit to do with Craig and they were doing a, a concert in the Opera House in 2013 and they approached me to write them a piece to premiere in the Sydney Opera House. So when I start a commission with, a, with any group, I, especially if it's just one group and it's not a consortium, I really like to do a survey of every player in, in the group. I try and find out a little bit about uh, the players, not only about their playing capability, but also a little bit about who they are. And usually my very last question is, share something with me about you. I don't care what it is, just share something with me that's going to help me get to know you a little bit better. And I, I found that student after student started saying, uh, you know, talking about their, their uh, heritage in terms of, oh, my grandparents were Dutch and they came out at the end of the Second World War. Um, and then, and that there were many, many, many different stories like that. So when I went digging deeper into uh, the, the area of Western Sydney, I suddenly discovered, I knew it was a highly multicultural area, 
but I had no idea just how multicultural it, it is. And so when I started really digging in and um, finding out about these, these uh, students in the band, I started realising that the kind of piece I needed to write that would have relevancy to them, because that's something that's very important to me, is to really do some digging into the stories of, of how different Australians have, have come to be in this, in this great land that we have. And so what were different people's stories? What astonished me was the stories that I discovered. The very, very first one that I, that I read, and I've got it here, and it was Rosalia from Slovenia. She was the very, very first story that when I went researching about refugees and different refugees that came to Australia, mostly at the, sec at the end of the Second World War, because that was the most relevant story to all the, the, uh, the students in the band. And when I read this, this section from her story, I was absolutely just stopped in my tracks. And she said, we arrived at Bathurst at 7am. Now, something you need to realise is that Bathurst was only about one hour from where I was living. I knew Bathurst. It's a university town. It's a really beautiful part of the world. But this lady, she has been on a ship. She lost everything. She lost her entire family in the war. She was stranded in Italy desperately trying to get passage either to America or Australia or whoever would come up first. Her opportunity came to come to Australia first. She was on this dreadful, uncomfortable ship. She arrives in city, in Sydney. They put her on a real rattly old train. She's exhausted. And then she arrives in Bathurst from Sydney at 7am in the morning. And she writes, but not to the town's railway station. We were out in the bush. It was the camp for the soldiers during the war. We saw bush magpies whistling, crows whistling, and we said, oh my God, where have we come? What's here? There's no camps here, no houses, nothing. We had to wait until the army trucks came and they took us to the camp. She then went on to say, "What? I can't go back. What, what have I done? I can't go back. I can't go forward. I'm completely lost. And it was at that point that I just thought, I can't even imagine how frightening that must have been. Why, why isn't this something that I know about, about my country's history? And I felt really embarrassed by that. So I just went digging and I read story after story after story and was just completely overwhelmed by the remarkable opportunities that some of these people had created for themselves in coming to Australia, how many of them fled dangerous situations and then arrived in Australia and turned their lives around with a lot of hard work, mind you, but really significantly turned their lives around. So Into the Sun, if you like, takes snippets of all of these stories and takes us on a journey. In the opening of this piece, the story that really, really touched my heart was um, Helen from the Ukraine. And Helen retold her story of being a child coming out on the ship. This story from the view, eyes of a child, it was an adventure. I really wanted to capture that energy and that spirit and that bright-eyed child in the opening. And uh, um, the band, when I uh, commissioned it, uh, was commissioned for it, the band that I wrote it for, there was this gun tuba player. He was only about 14. His name was Ben. 
and he could produce this fantastic um, replication of a didgeridoo on his tuba. It's such a, such a distinct sound that says Australia to people worldwide. So the piece itself is, uh, it's divided into six different sections. Um, it, it, they're like little vignettes, if you like. So we uh, start with Arrival, and this is what I was talking about with uh, Helen. And on, on the score and in the parts, you'll see. The first time I saw the coloured lights of Sydney, I thought it was like a fairy tale. During the war in Germany, there were no lights at all, least of all coloured lights. We walked down the steps from the ship and I stepped onto the soil and I thought, may we all be very happy and may we have lots of luck. And so this uh, opening here really starts with this big opening sound. You hear uh, a, a didgeridoo sound in our, our tuba, which is doubled with a string playing near the bridge to give that kind of raspy kind of sound. Uh, and it, it just leaves something really, really open. And it leave, it, I'm trying to capture that spirit of, of a child, really thinking, we're going to make this happen and this is going to be great and this is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to us. So we have this uh, opening trombone solo uh, that takes us through. I really encourage the trombone player here to really own this solo. What I really want is not for them to play it exactly as written so much, but for them to go back into their childlike self and really think about that wonderment. We then have the woodwinds start gradually to creep in and the texture starts to thicken. And we have different lines and different motives used throughout the piece that start to come through. And at measure 17, we find that the texture really thickens. We have this almost call and response happening. It starts with trumpets and then it's echoed all the way through. And what we find is that we come then to these three loud pauses at 21. And these pauses are designed to um, really put you on edge. It's that whole, oh, oh look. It's, it's that kind of moment in that child's eye of, wow, where are we? And uh, then that sort of starts to come down and peter out. And that's leaving the ship and leaving that first moment of, wow, here we are in Australia. And then, being shuffled onto a train. And uh, when we reach measure 27, uh, which is a new land, a new life, uh, here, here at this section, this is when we have our first series of, of train music. We have uh, a piano part here. The piano part is not that difficult, but it really is designed for that young high school or later middle school or even a campus band piano student if they haven't played with an ensemble before, this is a really great piece to get somebody in and really try and get them to lock in. But I love piano with band and I don't think we use it enough and I think it's a really great colour. So as we as we go into around measure 60, uh, the train sort of starts to, um, it doesn't slow down so much but that it just sort of comes to a halt and we, we come to a really nice cadence point around measure 60 and it's the piano that really emulates that feeling of, of slowing down. 
Again, a little bit like the trombone at the start. I'm not asking, I don't want the conductor to really conduct that section. They can take care of the release of the, of the chord at 62, but really leave the piano player to their own devices and let them slow down in their own way and really give them permission to own that section and really. So at um, 66, we have Camps and Confusion. This is Rosalia and her feeling of bewilderment, her getting off the train in Bathurst and looking around and saying, there's nothing here, what have I done? So what I have done here is that I have these different motives, but uh, if anyone knows my piece Whirlwind, they'll know that in Whirlwind I have a section which is a solo for any instrument. Again, I understand in our younger bands that we have different strengths of different players and it can be very difficult to find a piece that matches those strengths. In this piece, in, uh, here at Measure 66, you've got the opportunity to create trios out of a wide variety of instrumentation and it can really work to your strengths. So you can work in two different groups, I call them an A and B group, it's all described in the front of the score, but basically one sits an octave higher and one sits an octave lower. Uh, but they're three instruments and each of those instruments have their own different line to talk about. They have their own different um, feeling and emotion to talk about. And I'm thinking about the bewildered person and all the different thoughts that are going on in their head and, um, and what that might be. And if you have the A theme, this is what I'm thinking about in terms of vulnerability. If you have the B theme, it's a retrograde and a variation of solo A. It's a, it's a um, you know, sort of a mix-up of this. And, and, and this is flipping vulnerability around and it becoming quiet determination. The C solo is a variation of the main theme and it's almost reflecting that A theme just two bars behind. It's almost like this little echo. It's, it's should I think that? Yes, it's when these thoughts bounce around in our head. And, and this, this whole reflection of our main theme of vulnerability is, is really, for me, this hidden grief um, caused by, you know, the loss of loved ones and, and everything that meant home and this weight that these poor people must have been carrying with them at the end of the Second World War, having lost so much that they have loved, every part of safety that they knew, their home, their country, their culture, They've lost absolutely everything. And um, that that is something that is just weighing on them like the heaviest coat you can ever wear. At measure 83, we have acculturation. And this term acculturation means actually blending in with the culture that is around you. Not assimilating so much, but sharing your culture and, and, and sh sharing what you bring and taking what you have found and and be, becoming, you know, all, all the challenges that must come with that. I even know just when in my own travels in going to different countries, just how challenging it can be uh, to, to find things that are familiar to you because that's what we always seek. So this is a very, very delicate section at 83. It demands quite a lot of your first clarinet player. They're in a, a high range for that age group uh, and, a really um, 
uh, need to be, be confident and really have a good firm embouchure and really good air support to warm the sound in that part of the instrument. Uh, so you'll see that um, here, this is really classic Blackshaw writing through here. And what I mean by that is I don't write a lot of block vertical writing and uh, ends with this really lovely little sort of brass and saxophone chorale at 108, which is where, with all this unsettledness that started with uh, the camps and confusion, we now come to a, come to a place where we, uh, where we decide that it's time for us to make peace with the fact that we are here in Australia and it's time for us to be grateful for being alive, for having food in our bellies, for having a shelter over our house, over our heads, and that maybe it's time for us to, to get on with life. As we come into 115, which is opportunity, newfound enthusiasm, we, we come back to our trains, but our trains are in a little bit more open major key. Uh, they, they, they bring all the, diff the same sounds and the same motives and things that we've heard, but it, it's got a newfound energy to it. Uh, we have our, our similar kind of chords uh, in, in our brass, all, all the percussion is the same, but we are accelerating all the way through into 130. Now I actually don't think it's mentioned in the score that we should accelerate from about 126 or so, but in a few recent performances of this work, I encourage directors to add an accelerando from 126 and use that to go right through into 130. So at 130, we, the whole mood changes. It really, really changes. And it changes from this, this sadness and this weight and you know, big heavy coat that I, of grief that I talked about. And it's like that has been removed. So this here is, here in Australia, I am able to dream. Um, in the percussion, we use something called a lagophone. If you don't know what a lagophone is, it's a stick with um, bottle caps from beer bottles, that hence lager, as in the beer lager, and you punch a hole in the caps and you thread about four or so onto a nail and then you bang the nail into the wooden stick. You put a rubber stopper on the bottom and you have you hold it with one hand and you have another stick in the other hand and you belt it and play it away. At 170 to our reflection. And our reflection is this feeling of here I am and I've made it and I've, I've done what I came to do and, and isn't this wonderful. So, you know, we, we return with um, uh, our trombone sounds. We, we return uh, with, with some of these ideas of of different snippets of different motives that have been used earlier in the piece and we gradually just just dissipate and dissipate and disappear.
To end our episode this month, we give you a rehearsal peek into the Illinois Commencement Band. This group is conducted by Dr. Linda Morehouse, and they are rehearsing Sousa's The University of Illinois March. You may have noticed we didn't have a mid-episode update about Illinois bands this month. That's because the semester has ended, and it's a fairly quiet month for us. We will have some exciting activities starting next month as summer band begins. us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. Find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. And of course, watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. You can always check our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer and host of today's show is Sean Smith, and the staff of the podcast include co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, co-host and producer Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Mary Allison Mahachek, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of the episode and recording of segments is done by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Band's faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Band's. Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. <laughs>